Friday, a good afternoon. Welcome to the panel. Palmjeet Pamar and David Slack joining me this afternoon. First up, the volcanic alert level for Taupo is raised to volcanic alert level one. The minor volcanic unrest is causing the ongoing earthquakes and ground deformation at the Taupo volcano. More than 700 tremors have been recorded under the Central North Island's upper supervolcano rather since May of this year. So with us to discuss uh, is GNS Science volcanologist Nico Furnia. He's with us now. Nico, welcome. Kia ora. Is this the first time it's been raised to alert level one? So it is the first time we are raising the volcanic alert level to one, um, but it is not the first time the volcano has had this type of activity. We've seen basically many times in the past where we've had earthquakes and ground deformation like this. It's just that now we are better able to understand what these earthquakes and the ground deformation actually means, and, um, and we know that it's linked to volcanic processes at depth. So this is why we're raising the alert level to one. So uh, tell us more about that. What does it mean? What it means to be at volcanic alert level one, it means that people should probably be expecting um, earthquakes to continue for a little while until the volcano hopefully goes back to sleep, as it usually does. So it could mean more earthquakes for some weeks or months even. Uh, It's quite impossible to say at this stage, but the communities around the lake really should be expecting to feel more earthquakes and make sure they drop cover and hold when they feel one. Nico, is there... Well, you... Certainty is difficult in your field, I know, but but is there, can you say with, with confidence it'll just go back to sleep or are things a bit more yeah. open-ended? Yeah, so the, the odds are very much in our favour, to be fair. So we've had about um, a large, the vast majority of the unrest episodes we see at Lake Topo lead to nothing at all and the volcano goes to sleep. So it's something that is very common for Topo and it's actually very common for those large volcanoes overseas and around the world. To give you a bit of a sense, for instance, we've had about 17 of those unrest episodes over the past 150 years and none of them have led to anything. And in fact, we know that we've probably had hundreds of those events not leading to anything uh, in the past um, thousands of years, basically, since the last big eruption. Am I right in thinking the last cataclysmic one was about 7,000 years ago, or is it many more? So the last large eruption at Lake Taupo was in 232. Um, so that's basically AD. 800 right. years ago. Yeah, so, but it's actually a very unusual eruption for Caldera. We tend to focus a lot on those large eruptions, but the reality is that the vast majority are very small and uh, probably around the same size than what people have experienced in 1995 or 1996 at Um So again, those two large eruptions that we've had 1,800 years ago and 30,000 years ago were really the anomaly, not the norm. You're looking quite concerned, Palmjeet. You're okay? Oh. You're okay? <laughs> you know, I'm totally okay. So I just I just want to know how long would you, uh, like, observe it, it, that it remains at level one, and then basically it becomes kind of something that is uh, a non-event? So basically what we're looking for now, moving forward, is uh, effectively a decrease in the number of earthquakes we're observing, and we've been observing since May. So we need to actually see um, the earthquakes going back to pretty much where they are usually, which is not in the hundreds like this, but much, much lower. Um, we're also looking for a decrease of this slight ground deformation that we've measured with our instruments. So we're looking at all the symptoms, if you wish, and when we'll stop seeing 
those symptoms um, being at the level they're currently at. Um, hopefully that will um, tell us that the volcano is, is going back to a quieter period. And does this mean that your instruments are helpful enough that you uh, we wouldn't be taken by surprise or is the potential still there for that to happen? So the, the likelihood of the current unrest to lead to an eruption is, is very small because, again, the reality is that we are just flirting with uh, being at minor level of unrest. So it's probably useful to, to, um, to remember that there are several levels of unrest in our system, and level one is actually the minor, is the smallest one we've got on our scale. If activity was to increase, and I'm not even talking about an eruption, if just the unrest uh, was going to increase, there is yet another level, uh, level two, that we could get no. into. But we, we're nowhere near that at the moment. Well, very nice to have you on, Nico Kiora. Thank you for, uh, for um, explaining that to us. That's GNS science volcanologist Nico Fournier uh, on the news this afternoon that the volcanic alert level of the Topol volcano has been uh, raised to volcanic alert level one for the first time. 13 past four, the panel earlier this year. The Ministry of Health announced a million-dollar support package called the Return to Nursing Workforce Support Fund to bring nurses back to an industry that desperately needs them. It was big news, wasn't it? It was designed to support nurses who wish to return to work but may need training to catch up on their time out of the workforce. However, it seems that many of those who have applied have found they don't meet the criteria. In fact, only one in five have been successful. So is this fund really breaking down barriers for nurses or adding more? So with us, we are joined by the New Zealand Aged Care Association Chief Executive, Simon Wallace. Simon, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. So in May, you said the sector, uh, the association said the sector was short of over 1,000 nurses, quite a big statement there. Has this fund made any significant difference in the months um, since? So we've now got about 1,200 nurses short, Wallace. So in short, uh, no, it hasn't. Um, But um, we would acknowledge that it's brought some nurses back into the sector that might not have come otherwise. Um, But we're going to need a lot more than this to um, remedy the situation that we've got, that we've got in aged care. As I say, it certainly helps, but it's... um, it's Gosh. not going to solve the situation. So, so you're now 1,200 nurses short. So as you understand it, what is being misunderstood with the criteria or purpose of this fund? Well, I would say to you that I think that the that Tafata Aura is being a little churlish in the way it's um, assessing the criteria. I've, I've read the story about the nurse today and... Um, Certainly the view of the association would be that you've got to widen the criteria. Um, we, need, we need to provide um, all sorts of initiatives to get, to get nurses back, in, back into aged care in particular and um, kind of criteria that, that they've applied here in this situation um, but this, with this nurse in Dunedin is, is not helpful. So let's just make it make it a lot easier and get more nurses into the sector. More streamlined. Okay, so we'll bring our panel uh, very, very soon. But, I mean, Te Fata Ora, a spokesperson, did say, look, this fund was not intended as a general payment for all those who enter or re-enter the nursing workforce, candidates who have already obtained an annual practising certificate and found employment as a nurse before applying to the fund, they're not intended to be covered. Feels quite clear to me. 
Uh, yeah, it, it's certainly clear. It's certainly clear in the criteria. But I, I think that um, Wallace, we need to be providing all the incentives that we we can. And in this case, um, you know, the nurse has gone through some training that's cost her um, several thousand dollars. And I think it's just churlish not to um, not to support um, not to support her and and, and other nurses. Um, and you know, I understand that for round three of this fund, that um, Tafat Aura has widened the criteria. So we will certainly be working with them to make sure we can get as many nurses uh, through this as we can. Okay, um, Parmjeet, what are your but, thoughts on this? Twelve hundred nurses short for the aged care uh, uh, sector—quite significant. There, it is. It is quite significant. And actually, I'm thinking. I'm looking at both angles. So. If somebody applies for this uh, fund and then takes steps to get back into workforce, I think those should be considered to be eligible. But if somebody has already you know, entered the workforce and then realizes that they can apply for this fund, then this fund, the purpose of this fund is to provide incentive to come back. But that, that individual would have already come back by then. But if somebody applies and then takes steps, they should not be punished. Um, on the other angle, I mean, the ministry side, my view is that if you allow that, then what would be the cutoff time? Because um, six months before, um, you know, applying for the funding, three months before applying for the f- funding, uh, you entered into workforce. I think it will become quite complicated. There will be more kind of unintended consequences if that that is allowed. But here, clearly, what we are hearing from Simon Yu is that this incentive has not given you the workforce that you were looking at. Where are the nurses? Where are the nurses? That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, so what else can be done to bring nurses back or bring more nurses from maybe overseas? Okay, Simon. Um, Pamji, you look, you make a really good point there, and I think there's a few things that need to happen. I mean, immigration is, is one of those things, and we do need to get nurses on the... Uh, greenless fast track. We need to give them immediate residency from day one so they can set up home and, and put their roots down in, in, in New Zealand. And in aged care, we'd say we'll tie or bond those nurses to our sector for two years. Um, and we think that that's a reasonable expectation if we're giving someone immediate residency on day one. And we need to get the pay situation fixed in aged care because we, we are a publicly funded sector. Our care homes are publicly funded but they're not funded to be able to pay what their counterparts in public hospitals receive. So we've got to, we've got to get that fixed as well. We've got to really invest in our, in our health uh, workforce. Um, and we've got to train more. We've got to do a lot more training. I mean, this, this fund is only, is, is, is only part of it, but we've got to do a lot more of these sorts mm. of things as well. All right, David. I've got to testify from experience of the last month. Uh, my mum and dad just moved into a home, and so I spent uh, a bit of time in Masterton last uh, month looking around places and, and hearing exactly what Simon was describing. You, you get onto the point at, on the issue of available nurses, and you see the people who run these places get suddenly extremely animated about how much of a problem this has now become and how they see different parts of the the, the sector poaching from one another and they're, they're upset about that and justifiably. And and on top of that, to Simon's point about adequately, adequately paying uh, nurses for the work they're doing, I, I've now seen more closely just what goes on there and I'm just full of admiration for just what is done and, oh, yeah. and done so well and yeah, with so much David. commitment mm-hmm. and you know why you wouldn't pay those, these people generously and and well uh, is beyond me and uh, i i i also wonder simon about that point about the um uh, 
the churlishness of the of the process. It it really I can see the possibility that somebody would would go ahead and do the training because they think that funding is in prospect. And and if you're then caught because you'd already done the the training and got your uh, employment, well, I think that, that's that what seems happened. unfair. Is that yeah. right? That's what happened. Yeah. That was that's what's been happening, Simon. Yeah, look, yeah, it is, and I think we're getting caught up in, in bureaucracy here, and we're, we're we're not talking about a lot of investment here. So, look, let's just widen the criteria and make it. We've got to provide provide every possible incentive to get nurses uh, into the aged care sector, whether they're, whether they're New Zealand nurses returning to the workforce or, or our valuable migrant nurses. So we've, we've, got to be, we've got to be open to all of that. Simon, do you know what kind of pool, pool is there for um, returning nurses? Uh, this was an example in the story in, in, in the news of, of somebody who was in her 50s and returning. Uh, do you know if there are, there are many people who potentially could be doing this? Yeah, so so we know actually from from the three rounds that that, that we've had, or well, the two rounds that have been completed, that that we've picked up about 150 nurses through through the through this mm. return to nursing fund. So that that's that's really good. It's it's not stemming our losses, but but as I say, anything is anything is helpful. Um, but it is those bigger settings around immigration, around the, the pay yeah. parity issue, and around right. around training. And you, you talked about your your family and and, and Masterton, and you know, unfortunately, what we're seeing play out around the country is families that are really desperate to get to get loved ones into into a care home because they've been clinically assessed as requiring care, and and they're stuck. They're either stuck at home or they're in a in a public hospital. And, and Simon, I think that many yeah. Many uh, will relate to that, listen to that, uh, and in fact you can get in touch if uh, you are in that situation. There are no places to send, uh, you know, your beloved no more dad um, in aged care. You can text me 2101, email the panel at rnz.co.nz. We'll pick it up uh, on another show. For now, Simon Wallace, Kiora, thank you. He's the Chief Executive of the New Zealand Aged Care Association. 22 past four. Palmjeet Pamad, David Slack with me this afternoon, and rising food prices is putting the squeeze on everyone's shopping trolley, and that influences the types of foods you might buy. That can make it hard for low-income shoppers to get enough healthy food, experts say. StatsNZ said this week food prices were 8.3% higher than in August of 2022, than in August last year, the largest annual increase since July 2009. So to talk about how consumers respond to food inflation or trading down, as it's known, we have Professor of Public Health Nutrition at Massey University, Professor Carol Wom. Kia ora, Professor. Uh, kia ora, kia ora. Good to have you on. If food inflation does remain high, and at this stage it looks as if it's going to, would some families find it really hard to maintain that healthy diet? Oh, definitely. I think we've got lots of evidence of that already. And, um, you know, we, we know that, that from good evidence, it's actually a lot easier to eat unhealthily. And one of the, one of the points is that we've actually had major changes to our global food system, which has become very economically driven. So a, a commercial focus produces an oversupply of dietary energy from low nutrient crops, you know, such as corn and sugar. 
And we do in this country have an oversupply as other parts of the world of ultra processed foods. These are very industrially processed foods which contain excess salt, sugar, refined grains and oils. But the thing is that the production costs are low, um, they have a long shelf life and a high retail value. Um, some work done in New Zealand suggests that about 85% of our packaged foods in supermarkets are ultra-processed. And we know from a recent uh, cohort study in Dunedin of about 700 one- to five-year-old children, about half of their dietary energy was coming from ultra-processed foods. Oh, right. Okay, so you've got your... You know, you've got your money just not going far, Parmesan, and all of a sudden you're uh, swapping out some uh, really fresh veggies, fresh veggies for say, uh, ramen, or your your or your instant noodles. That's right, and actually, it is a sad reality. And I mean, we produce kiwi fruit. If I use that as an example, and we have such a good reputation of uh, you know exporting kiwi fruit to around the world, and one would imagine that every household should have a basket of kiwi fruit sitting on their bench top. I mean, kitchen kitchen top. But that's not the reality because even kiwi fruit is so expensive for us local consumers, because everything, whether it's fresh produce or things which are in packets, bottles, they all come from some sort of businesses. And at the moment, the businesses are finding it really, really hard. And given most of these businesses are small businesses, a big chunk of their cost is labor cost. And so, yep, increasing minimum wage is good, but then we have to also find ways how we can make sure that that is not passed on to the so consumer. Circular. And, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, stay there, um, uh, Carol. Let's bring David and he can respond to, respond to both. I, I do remember, too, that w- there was a time when we subsidized milk just to ensure that something as fundamental as that right. was available. Right. You know, it is, it is conceivable <laughs> that mm. you actually act to a, a, intervene in the market to make certain fundamentally healthy food available. It, you could do it if you wanted to. Yeah, I agree with that because when we saw the subsidy com- come off milk, we saw um, a trajectory and rise of soft drinks and consumers actually thought that soft drinks were better value for money than milk in that case. Mm. Hang on, when did the subsidy come off milk? This Muldoon, is, 1975. This, this is interesting. 1975 are you, it was. Yeah. Are, you, are you both suggesting on the panel this afternoon to return to the era, this will get uh, the tits going, to return to the era of subsidised staples by the government? I'm suggesting you explore the possibility, Wallace. Professor yeah, Wong? I would com- to completely agree with that, particularly something like milk where we know that our milk intakes are really low and the nutrients from milk that we really need are low. Um, Um, I have a different view. I think how long can government keep subsidizing healthy food? That's that's just not the way to, because we want to find a solution that is sustainable. And that's not going to be sustainable. That's (laughs) the problem. That's what we're talking about. We're we're not finding the solution. But this is a hobby horse of mine in exploring the idea of a universal basic income. uh, They've experimented in, now I'm going to forget which Norwegian country it was. Sorry, which Scandinavian country. I'm pretty sure it was Norway, where they experimented with UBI and found that actually expanding the range of f- free stuff, you know, permanently as an, a- an aspect of your government spending in the way that we do, for example, and take for granted, free medical care, free education. So these things, you know, okay. there is, a, we recognise that out of our government spending, which is, I, I'll recognize, I acknowledge, a big chunk of our GDP, it is still tenable to do these things 
on a sustainable basis if you make you make your selection and figure out in your budget whether you're going okay. to be able to so, maintain someone this will or have not. To for that. Uh, of course, yeah, taxes do. Yeah, taxes yeah, do. Yeah. In the way and that we do education and health. All right, let's yeah. bring, bring but, Carol again. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to make the point that, you know, look at the outcome, the obesity and the diet-related diseases that we have to treat here. You bet. I mean, just the simple solutions would, would um, really benefit. And just the point about... Um, Businesses under under you know some sort of um, pressure. I think that something like flavorants and noozles, which are all imported, I just had a look at those today. Some of them contain thirty four ingredients. <laughs> they have um, either two thirds or the total uh, daily intake of sodium in them or salt. Uh, you know that this is what they're prolifically available. I'm, I'm remembering that a generation ago, the byword for my cheapest meal was mince. And now when you talk to students about it, it's, it's noodles. This you know, is yeah. really it's interesting. Uh, um, Carol, kia ora. Um, we'll follow this up, actually, because uh, people are quite interested in this. That is a professor of public health nutrition who advocates, not advocates, but is open to the suggestion of going back to the days of uh, Mulder and as David Slack is and subsidising subsidising uh, by the state um, some of your staples, such as uh, your milk or your cheese. Palm trees dead against it uh, here. What do you think? Text me, 2101. Would you be open to the idea of the government subsidising milk? What else would they subsidise, David? Did it, did it, did it, did it cheese as well? Um Post, because <laughs> well, I'm just remembering what Muldoon took off all of a sudden, and um, when he came to power, apart from dumping our super scheme that would have been worth something in the water of three hundred billion in today's dollars, um, but actual expense. Well, I've got a feeling that might have been bread too, that it might have been subsidised. We'll get an economic story on it. So my point is that it's not just about subsidising; it's about making sure that the cost of that production can be reduced and working in that manner. So oh, that the yeah, consumer, sure. I mean, because if taxpayers paying means taxpayers is, um, are again people, they will be paying for oh, that. Sure. Oh, yeah, sure. So, so we want to make sure that it, all the bottlenecks that are there that are um, uh, creating that hurdle for production of food in a cheaper manner, those needs to be looked at so that the food can be produced in a manner that can be affordable for everybody. For sure. Very good stuff. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, big response uh, uh, to uh, this. Uh, we have got David Slack and Dr. Palmjit Pamar on the panel uh, this afternoon. A um, bit of feedback here regarding walking, actually, by the way. Uh, quite a bit of response on that. I walk six kilometres six times a week. This is David, um, David Slack's I've been thinking. He said we need to... Walk all more. walking is good for yeah, you. Yeah, all walking is good for <laughs> and, more. And, and, about if it. and if you're finding it hard to do it, get a friend and get them to start mm. you off. Yeah. Uh, Paul in Devonport says, I walk all the time, the dog to work, the city to socialise. Uh, and uh, Margot says, there is a physiological basis to creativity and walking. It's not uncommon for brainwaves to move to a theta-dominant brainwave status, which is the next level up from slow wave. It is sometimes referred to as a dreaming state. Einstein was well known for taking a walk after lunch. There you go.